Hey guys, thanks for joining us on another episode of the Body Clock Podcast by O-Waves. If you haven't already, please remember to download the free O-Waves app on the Apple App Store. It's the number one wellness app on the App Store. It's fun, it's easy to use, and it will allow you to effectively plan your day. It works great as a visual planner, and please remember to tell your friends and family. Also, if you're enjoying the show, please do us a huge, huge favor and leave us a five-star rating on your podcast app. As always, thanks for listening and hope you enjoy the show. Hi, guys. Welcome to another episode of the Body Clock Podcast by O-Waves. Today, I've got a very intriguing guest, Peter Paroli, who is just phenomenal in terms of what he's achieved and done. Um, So he is an expert in computational psychology and artificial intelligence research. He's also working in human-computer interaction and human and machine cognition at the Florida Institute. He's based in San Francisco. He studied at top universities such as Carnegie Mellon University, where he did a PhD in cognitive psychology, as well as being an associate professor at UC Berkeley. Um, So there's a wide range of topics of where kind of psychology, cognition, and artificial intelligence meet. And Peter can tell us a little bit more about his background and what he's doing currently. So, hey, Peter, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, So it'd be great if you could tell the listeners about, A, what you're up to now, especially with, you know, um, working at the Human and Machine Cognition, um, the Florida Institute, because that sounds very exciting. And I think a lot of people would not have any idea of what's happening and how you're pushing the boundaries. And then also go into a bit about your background and what interested you in kind of behavior science as well as combining that with technology. Sure. Um, so I, I am kind of a recent addition to the uh, Florida Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, although I've known uh, the folks there, in particular the director, uh, Ken Ford, for uh, a couple of decades now. And um, it's, it's, it's a very interesting place, partly because uh, it does such a variety of research. Um, uh, it started off being you know, fairly focused in on um, studies of human cognition, human-centered computation, and, um, and understanding artificial intelligence. And now it's kind of broadened out to a number of other areas, including uh, human health, resilience and performance, and cybersecurity, uh, uh, looking at trying to understand autonomy and, um, and autonomous systems, and, uh, and, and a very big effort in uh, robotics. So they have a very successful robotics team that's done very well in some of the DARPA uh, uh, robotics challenges. Um, and uh, they've taken kind of a unique approach to all of that. So um, I've, I've followed their work for a long time and I'm, I'm very happy to have joined that organization. Uh, and uh, my own work um, is, is diverse. Um, so I, uh, I, I had a degree in uh, cognitive psychology from, from Carnegie Mellon, which is a very uh, heavy AI institute and has been since the dawn of artificial intelligence. In fact, uh, two of the most significant people in artificial intelligence, Herbert Simon and Alan Newell, uh, founded uh, you know, the, the uh, AI in, in 
or in the 50s and in were at CMU and I was fortunate to be there while they were still alive. And um, and my own interest, it was in psychology, but it had a very um, AI flavor to it. We were very much interested in developing computational models that could mimic and simulate what, what the human mind was doing. And I was very interested in complex cognitive tasks and how could you build systems to support that. Um, I was very interested in, um, in building artificial intelligence systems to, to tutor people one-on-one. -on -one. And it was a very successful program of research at CMU that ultimately went out into the world with uh, some commercial um, entities. <clears throat> and um, since that time, I've been very interested in the human computer interaction space and trying to understand how we can engineer systems to um, you know, better interact with people and, and, um, um, and create more usable kinds of systems. And, and somewhere along the way, uh, probably as smartphones became so pervasive, I got interested in the possibility of using them to support um, uh, healthy behavior change and particular, I guess, more broadly, lifestyle change, which is, I guess, how we got in contact. And, um, and as a scientist, I was interested in that because, you know, if you're a psychologist, especially a scientific experimental kind of psychologist, you, you know, you're, the way you think about these things is, well, I've got to bring people into the lab and study them in the lab, and hopefully that has some relevance to what goes on in the real world at some point. And with digital technology, now all of a sudden you've got this opportunity to actually go out into the world, collect data from real people. Um, if, they, if they agree, you can do various kinds of experiments to try to help them either you know, change their behavior or, or do something differently. And so just as a scientific opportunity, it just seemed like, man, we can actually be doing science in the real world and understanding how people click. And uh, so that was, you know, from a scientific perspective, mm -hmm. that's why I was interested in that. And then, of course, um, you know, the healthcare crisis uh, is, <laughs> is, is, is upon us in terms of just how much it costs. And my understanding is that, uh, you know, a very large percentage of those costs can be ameliorated if we could just help people live healthier lifestyles. And um, you know, I've seen various estimates, you know, 500 billion to a trillion dollars per year could, uh, could be addressed if we could just help people change their behaviors to be healthier. And so that seemed like a, you know, an enormous, enormously interesting problem to go after because um, it has, you know, the clinical approaches to this even if they're really good, just don't have the kind of pervasiveness and intensity that you need to help people change their, their lives. So, you know, in some of the domains that I'm looking at, um, you know, if you want to lose weight and, and start exercising more, you might join a program and, uh, or you could spend some money on a personal trainer, I guess. Hmm. Uh, but, but typically a weight loss program that you might get through your hospital or whatever, you might see somebody once a week and, you talk for an hour with a group of other people and then you go off and you try to do these things in your everyday life and you know life gets in the way so here you know with with digital technology you can actually be doing kind of you know over the shoulder coaching and and more uh direct 
uh, assessment and personalization than you could ever do before. And you could do it in a way that scales. You're not restricted mm -hmm. by the fact that there's only a limited number of, of clinicians or experts uh, who all require, you know, lots of training and, and all the rest of that. So, so anyways, that was my interest. And uh, fortunately, I've, I've been able to get um, uh, funding from various uh, enlightened institutions like NIH and NSF and been able to pursue this in a way that that has kind of built upon my interest in uh, psychology and computational modeling and to do it in a way where we're, we're starting to be able to build models that are have high fidelity to what we know about the human brain and neuropsychology and how how the machine how the brain machine works and to use those models to try to understand the impact of of the very specific uh, interventions that we're doing over the over the phone and and use use those models to understand what's happening and hopefully that'll start to help us understand how to personalize things and optimize those interactions in a way that supports people. So sorry, that was a long-winded <laughs> explanation, but that's, that's sort of where I am. No, I mean, that was very interesting. I, I, you had me on every word there because um, you touched upon some really interesting points there and a wide range of points. So um, first I'll pick up on the fact that you said about um, coaching and behavior change. Um, mm -hmm. So you talked about how um, through technology, we have more touch points, right? Because you spend longer yep. with your phone than you do with a, a personal trainer or a nutritionist or a doctor. Um, and that's mm -hmm. a limited resource, whereas this can be scalable. So right. do you think, so, so obviously you're working in that perfect sphere. So you understand the human brain, neuroscience, psychology, you understand behavior, and then you understand um, computation, tech, how data can be used and how machines can be developed in order to emulate or um, get close to human cognition or human kind of how the human acts. So do you think um, a machine could replace a human or an AI model could replace a human in the future for coaching more specifically? Or do you think there's an augmentation? Um, well, I think, uh there's so first of all i think you know if you're talking about really um expert coaches or or coaches who have, have a lot of experience it, it's very difficult to say that that you would have the ability to replace them completely i mean um you know if you're talking uh, so just to go to one extreme if you're talking about you know kind of elite coaches you know the kind of the kind of people who uh, you know, work with NFL teams and things like that. Uh, they they have um, such a degree of knowledge and experience and the ability to look people in the eyes to to do the kind of coaching that I think would just be you know well at least well beyond the foreseeable future in AI. Um, but uh, the you know the flip side is um, you know there's there's a lot of stuff that you can do with most of the people for most of the problems that they face that mm. um, that could be done at scale without you know the full you know level of expertise that you would require for for that kind of thing and that's where there's like a a, a real um, opportunity for disruption so um, and I use that term 
in the way that it's been classically used when people talk about disruptive technology. So the, you know, the classic definition of, of disruptive technology isn't just you're shaking things up. It's that you, that, that there may be kind of entrenched, very high quality solutions to something that are already out there. But, but you may be able to come in with something that's much more scalable and cost effective that deals with 80 to 90% of, of the issues and things that need to be done. Mm. And that, that allows you to, you know, uh, um, help a lot of people. And, and, and from there, you, you can start to go after the kind of higher level functional stuff that you, you need. And so there's lots of examples of this in the, in the technology world. And I think that's, that's where the real opportunity is for these things that are digital platforms, that there's large aspects of the day-to-day -day, um, monitoring and, and help that can be done um, you know, at scale with sophisticated uh, AI technology. That, and I think that's where the opportunity is. So do you foresee a future where um, we're walking around and maybe a smartwatch or a smart device or even going to a smart fridge or a home device like an Alexa or Google Home is giving us real-time information on what health activity to adopt next or what's optimum for us and we then have a choice. Do you think that works for most people? Because obviously you've, you, you're an expert in psychology. Do you think we need something personable to be telling us or do we just need that information at the right point to trigger that behavior? Um, well, you know, I mean, anytime I talk about, um, you know, having agents kind of, inter, you know, intervening and helping and all the rest of that, of course, the first thing people say, well, is, you know, I don't want to be annoyed with all that crap. Hmm. Yeah, um, that's what happens. <laughs> yeah. And so, but I think that's part of the, part of the, um, part of the research and part of how the technology has to work. I mean, um, it, it has to be done in a way that, as you said, it's, it's happening at the right moment and at the right time. And, and, and doing so in a way that it's effective. So it can't just be a barrage of hints and reminders and, and information that you're just going to shut off, either mentally or, or go into your notifications and turn the stuff off. So, so that's part of the, the nuance of, of what it means to personalize. I mean, you have to, um, you, know, you, you have, to have enough of a, a model or an algorithm that knows, um, you know, if, 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 if I say this one thing right now, they're just going to turn me off. Uh, if I say it at a different point in time or in a slightly different way or, or at, mm -hmm. uh, you know, at, at a moment that is an opportunity to do this, it's going to be much more highly effective. So that's, that's part of the game here is you've got to figure that stuff out. And again, to use, um, you know, to use the commercial world, some, somehow a lot of these big companies seem to know how to do a lot of that, like knowing exactly <laughs> where, when to place an ad and where such that all of a sudden you're off, off buying it, you know. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the number of times Amazon seems to come up, come up with things I was literally about to look for, but they've already yeah. presented that. Yeah, Scary. so that's, so so I I'd like to do that without being so frightening. <laughs> In a more friendly, approachable, uh, seamless way. But as you say, also with cognitive fatigue. So I mean, we we don't want to be because we're so information overloaded these days that we do need more seamless interactions and kind of less screen time, but some type of, I don't know, vibration or some type of, um, you know, with augmented reality where we can kind of um, superimpose 
the artificial world onto the real world, which can help us kind of guide us in the right way or motivate us in some way. Yeah. So all of those are, are you know, are huge opportunities. I don't, I don't know that I could say much about how we might use artificial, uh, sorry, um, augmented reality other than to say, I mean, it just seems like such a cool idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, which is, which brings me on to, so you talked about um, um, working with um, kind of athletes and elite performers and Navy SEALs. Can you tell me more about that? Any, any work in kind of focus resilience that you've done or um, what you think is important to, that, that pushes people to the next level? Yeah, I have to say that I'm, I'm just starting to work in that area. So I, I can't really give you, you know, a whole lot of insights yeah. because I'm, I'm just starting there. But the, um, there's a number of people at, um, at IHMC, um, Don Carnegas, uh, Joe Gomes, Ken Ford himself uh, works a lot in this area. And um, the, the, the issue is, um, you know, and, and um, I guess NASA is another group that we're kind of interested in um, because space mm. health is a, a really big operator. So you've got, you've got people who are, um, uh, you know, under stress often. Um, they're, they're operating in extreme environments that are going to have an impact on their performance capabilities and especially their overall uh, resilience. Um, and, um, you know, especially with things like warfighters and special forces guys and NASA astronauts, um, you know, they're at, you know, at high altitude or in space being bombarded. Uh, a lot of what the research is about is um, trying to understand kind of the metabolics of it all, um, you know, understanding um, what nutritional approaches give you some kind of neuroprotection, uh, how you know neuromuscular uh, metabolics are, are 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 changing. What kinds of uh, esters or supplements can have an impact on this? Uh, what sort of things can you know? Um, yeah, if you've just swam five miles in frigid weather and and you now you've got to get onto a beach and you've got to be completely. Uh, you know, completely at your highest level of performance. What's the combination of things that you need to do? So a lot of a lot of the research uh, around uh, this is 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 trying to understand the metabolics of all of this and the interventions uh, from the from the molecular level all the way up. Like you know, what are the epigenetic markers of of stress and and what can we do to change that? Um, um, so, anyways, that that's the kind of thing that that uh, many people at IHMC are interested in. And, uh, you know, I, part of the thinking is that these are the things that if you, if you study them in the elite performers, that's gonna have some carryover to the general population. So, you know, um, the sorts of things that, that are going to affect us all as we age are, are, are again, a lot of the same kind of stress responses and, and metabolic changes that are gonna get studied in um, elite performers. You're right. And then that makes it translatable to the general public at a later stage because a lot of the cutting edge um, um, supplements, techniques, technologies are always used in places like the Navy SEALs or the Army. Um, and then it takes quite a few years for it to trickle more downstream. Um, so it's quite exciting being able to work at that, you know, the cutting edge of technology and performance. Um, but you bring that um, nuance of 
psych psychology and neuroscience and human behavior where I think more people are turning their eyes towards because if we're saying now we live in a world where technology is accelerating so quickly and a lot of our human capabilities are being surpassed by technology, um, the one thing which, we, which is unique to us and not machines would be how we make decisions and our behavior. Yeah, and, and I, guess, I guess one thing um, that's kind of interesting to me was um, I have had some opportunity to talk to some of these special forces people and, and especially their trainers. And, um, and of course, there's a huge physical component. I mean, these guys go through just amazing programs of training that subject them to all kinds of what might be called abuse in the regular <laughs> workforce. Yeah. But, uh, but um, you know, one, one thing they said is just, uh, you know, you can often train people to, to do these things, to stay up for days and be cold and, you know, uh, not have had a drink of water for, for 24 hours. And, wow. and, 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 and so they can do all that stuff physically. And yet they said, you know, one of the things that really separates a lot of the elite performers from the rest of the pack is, is this kind of psychological resilience and being able to overcome those things. And I think there's a large part of that that translates to, to a lot of things that we do in our own, you know, attempts to change our mm -hmm. behaviors and, 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 and address things. So I don't know very much about addiction, but I mean, they always talk about, you know, facing your fears and things mm -hmm. like that. And, and even, um, you know, more mundane things like, uh, oh, you know, you, you may make a decision that, uh, you know, you need to lose weight and, and start uh, becoming more physically active. Well, there's certain psychological, well, there's lots of psychological aspects to that, including just being motivated, but also, you know, kind of fear responses, right? If, if you, you know, don't have a lot of self-efficacy about being able to tackle new things and, uh, you know, and the idea of taking on a challenge like, you know, starting to run more or, or walk more or, or eating better, um, if if you don't kind of overcome that, then you can just switch off the messaging that you take in. So you just don't want to hear any more information about it. You don't want to hear any more about you need to lose weight. You don't want to think about the fact that you may not get to see your grandchildren. And so um, the psychological component and, and sort of being able to take on challenges that you know are, are probably a little bit out of your comfort zone, that probably has a lot of commonality with these guys who are, are you know, elite performers. They've learned how to, how to overcome any, you know, their fears and, and the things that they, they, that are challenging them. So as you touched on, engagement is the key component because you could have the best workouts, nutrition tips, that information could be there or the enablers, but until you crack that behavioral equation and get people to engage, nothing's going to happen. And that's interesting how, the top performers seem to be doing that quite perfectly or having a strong mindset. So what makes a good coach? What is it from a behavioral aspect that, that you think makes, uh, from, from a psychology perspective, makes certain coaches stand out and makes people engage with certain people more than others? Uh, well, that's, that's a very good question. I mean, um, it, it it, just anecdotally, I know having talked to a number of people who are in the in the fitness and nutrition consulting uh, spaces, um, 
uh, I think they would all agree that simply providing people with information is is not the solution. That that most people that they that come in um, know what they need to do and uh, can can often rattle off you know the nutritional content of everything that they're eating. That that's not the issue. So a lot of these folks do in fact say that a large part of what they you know they they have to master all of all of the information and the content but that a large part of what they're doing is is really in the psychological space and trying to i mean even the simple um the the simple tactic of 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 tuning the goals and the strategies for addressing those goals to the particulars of how that person operates um you know that simple psychological strategy in and of itself seems to be kind of a big component of what they're doing so um, you know, breaking down big steps into smaller steps, mm. giving people lots of success at the simple steps so that it, they build up the self-efficacy to take on the bigger challenges. Um, I think, uh, you know, there's a, a certain amount of just being able to, for coaches to read their clients and, um, and to be able to, uh, you know, obviously motivate them uh, and uh, to be able to, um, do these these psychological interventions, whether they know it or not, where they're um, they're they're sort of breaking things down into the components that um, that get you to where you need to be. So you know, understanding how to get people motivated, um, breaking the tasks down into small enough stuff, emotional support. I think throughout all of these things is is enormous. So um, you know the. People will often disclose that you know that they're having some particular problem. You know, they just you know, there's no way that they can uh, tackle some goal. Well, being able to just simply you know acknowledge that that emotion is happening, um, and to be able to give the assurance that lots of other people have been there and made it through that, and I'm going to show you how to do that. Um, those are all psychological tricks. I mean, it's not informational stuff. I shouldn't say tricks. I mean, they're, they're, they're methods, right? And, and I think a lot of good coaches have a lot of those methods. Um, I'm sure if you looked at the, at the elite athlete, for example, um, that a lot of what they're doing, uh, you know, a lot of athletes are, 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 you know, incredibly aware of their own, their own bodies and what needs to be done. And, you know, they're, they have these, um, you know, incredible high performance coaches who can tell them what they need to do for rehab and stuff. And I'm, I'm sure that 90% of it is just getting them motivated and, and, and kind of in, in the right psychological space to do what needs to be done. And do you think that mood tracking could be something that we could do in the future using techniques such as machine learning and AI? Well, there's, I mean, there's a certain amount of that that's kind of done in fairly cheap ways, right? Just hmm. simple, uh, what are called ecological momentary assessments where you just, you know, you can, the simplest version of this is the smiley face stuff that you can mm -hmm. do, right? But I think there's probably a, a big opportunity in the space of monitoring um, either speech or other sensor data that would probably be really good indicators of mood. So, um, you know, there's there's a certain amount of research that's going on in the, in the speech area. Um, trying to detect um, things like neuro, um, uh, 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 neurological problems, 
in advance of, uh, of you know, Alzheimer's and PTSD and things like that. And I'm sure there's people that are out there that can do um, kind of ambient, um, uh, um, machine learning of ambient uh, data that you're collecting off of, of smart smartphone that can probably indicate things like depression. Um, and so the issue would be, okay, you know, can you do that in a way that's, you know, ethical and, um, uh, and reliable hmm. and then, and, and then do the interventions that, that, you know, that you need to do. Cause you know, uh, cause, cause, cause often people as they're getting into that state don't want to hear from anybody. So. You're right. And that's interesting because um, recently, um, as part of our waves, um, we were showcasing at a, um, in London, a recent conference, the sports and wearable technology conference. And there I came across a company, Limbic AI, and -hmm. they're essentially using a smartwatch, um, a Garmin watch at the moment, because um, um, some other companies don't really keep that, make their APIs public um, to use heart rate, to give you a positive or negative valence. So you can see if your mood is positive or negative. Um, So I found that pretty cool and quite interesting. Um, and I guess over time, if, if they can gather a lot of data, they could probably start associating what makes certain people happy, which would be quite powerful. Yeah. So I think, again, I, you know, I can't offer any guarantees on this, but mm-hmm. it seems to me that, that there's probably a lot of things that uh, you give off through your behaviors that are indicators of what kind of mood you're in. I mean, it's certainly mm-hmm. the case that I think my dog can pick up on what kind of mood I'm in. Yeah. And, you know, so, so if, so if he knows I'm in a happy mood, he, he knows <laughs> he, he can probably trick me to go to the beach. Uh, and, and if I'm in a, and if I'm in a not so good mood, he just sort of, you know, lays in a corner and watches me until I get into a better mood. So, so like if, a small and persuasive dog. <laughs> well, 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 yeah. And so if, if, uh, if, um, you know, and I, I think dogs are probably smarter than most AIs, but, but it certainly is an indicator that there must be these kind of ambient uh, behavioral signals that you're, you're giving off that if you could pick, pick them up, you could do something with. Because um, Eric Topol, um, who's obviously a renowned digital health expert, it's interesting because mm-hmm. he says how physicians and doctors, we can't um, pick up cues because we're already picking up so much information and signs at times that we miss data points that... Um, can be captured through sensors and then analyzed through a machine learning algorithm and which gets smarter and um, can really help um, help um, consultations and help people themselves realize things they may not be cognizant of. So um, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I suspect that I suspect that part of the problem there is that, that doctors have such a small window of time to collect data. Right. So, so if you've got something that's been monitoring, um, sensor data about you for some long period of time. I, I mean, I imagine that part of it is just almost like um, an anomaly detection kind of thing where you're saying, well, you know, uh, most what, you know, for this particular person, most of the time when they're, they've been in a good mood, this is what the pattern of signals is. And when they're not, it's something else. And, and because you're collecting data at such a fine grain and over a long period of time, you can do that. And, and it would be difficult to detect. Right? Well, we know this in, in everyday life, um, you know, just interacting with a person over a coffee doesn't give you kind of a full insight into what their full, you know, psychological state is. So. And what's your opinion or research into network effects and social 
connections and how they may influence psychology for healthy behaviors or just human <clears throat> interaction? Yeah, so I, um, in, in our own research, um, we, the, many of the applications that we've built for research purposes have a, have a teaming component to it. So it's not like a full online social network component, mm. but, uh, but we like to gather people into small groups that are about five to 10 people working on some common goal. So everybody's you know, trying to uh, improve their physical fitness or, or you know, working on particular nutrition goals. And one of the things that comes out of the, the data fairly quickly is that if that those social effects make up a large part of, of whatever effect we're interested in. So, um, you know, um, people, people's ad adherence to the goals that they have set up for themselves um, varies uh, by about 40% in, okay. in, rela in relation to whether they're on a good, good team or a poor team for whatever that means. Oh wow! Uh, so, so we know that a, that a, at least in the early studies where we looked at that, that that a big component of the effect is really the social effect. And I and and I often give talks where where I say at the end it's like you know and this is one of the big things that we need to do research on. It's obviously a big you know it's a it's a big effect, and we just don't know anything about it. Now um, there is a little bit that we know about it. Um, so in um, in the world of online forums, uh, one of my colleagues, Robert Kraut, who's at CMU, has done a bunch of research, and now there's a lot of people that have done similar kinds of research, um, that show that it, you know, long-term engagement is dependent, in, in these social forums, uh, long-term engagement is associated with certain things. Um, it, if, if, if you're in a forum, and you're interacting in a way where you're asking informational questions, and by gosh, someone actually responds quickly and gives you some informational responses, that's likely to keep you engaged at a slightly higher rate. If, um, if you're in a forum and you make what I called one of these emotional disclosures where you say, you know, I know everything I need to know, but by God, I can't face another day trying to get myself out the door and going for a run. I really just can't do it anymore. I don't feel like doing it anymore. And if someone steps in at that point and gives you some emotional support, then that has a, a, a much, an even bigger impact on your continued engagement. And, um, and so the, you know, my suspicion is that there's something that there are, there are various things that happen in these social groups and in, in online social networks where if there's a certain amount of bonding that happens, that those folks are gonna have a lot of influence on you. And so, so the question is, you know, how do you, you, know, what, how do, you do the social engineering to make that happen? And, um, and so that's, that's why there's like some interesting research to be done to try to figure out, you know, in some sense, how do you curate these things to be positive social experiences that have um, have some impact because as we all know, social systems can go horribly wrong too. Mm. And so, so, uh, you, you know, you don't, you, you know, you don't want to go into some weight loss online system and suddenly be body shamed or something like that. So, you know, fine line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so we gotta, we gotta figure out. So, so anyways, um, 
how to do that and how to do that perhaps in a way where there's you know maybe some algorithmic way to help the process work better i think those are some really big issues uh, and and frankly not a lot of research going on i mean that's quite incredible that um you've actually looked into that because um with social media generally getting quite a lot of um negative um attention for some of the negative um um, social relationships that can be formed in people's mental health suffering. Um, mm -hmm. It's a great point that if used in the right way, it can really kind of motivate people uh, as well. So it's like a yeah. double-edged sword almost. Um, so with that, um, how do you balance your life? How do you, do you, do you generally keep a healthy life? Um, obviously, O-Waves is around lifestyle and circadian rhythm biology. Um, so run us through your day when you wake up when you sleep do you eat exercise um yeah so i um i think i have a record of my um my activities probably going back into the 90s um uh not a detailed blog book or anything but I've, i i make it a point of um trying to keep a fairly good balance of um of Various activities. So, so I, I surf. Um, I do some running. I wouldn't say that I'm a runner. Um, and and you know I have uh, I go mountain biking and I go to the gym. And so I've I've kept a pretty good log of the days that I go do those things. So I try to be fairly consistent and 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 do all of that stuff. Um, and uh, you know I, I wouldn't say that I'm good at any of those things, <laughs> but but I enjoy them all immensely. And uh, it seems to be kind of the right balance for uh, both my mental state and, and my physical state. Uh, I think I'm pretty much at the same weight that I was probably 20 years ago. Oh, wow. Um, and I, but, you know, each of those things has, has kind of a different thing. So I like, I like mountain biking and surfing, not, you know, not, not because, well, they, they're both great physical activities, but almost more for the, for the, the mental stuff. It's, it's, you know, it's the kind of thing that you can lose yourself into. Um, and so, you know, mountain biking is something where, you know, you really can't, can get these, um, you know, almost flow like experiences and be out there in nature. And so I love that kind of stuff. And, and surfing is the same kind of thing. It's, it's when you, you know, when you, when you're really sort of on it and you've really got some great waves, you know, you sort of uh, get right into it. Um, and uh, both my wife and myself, you know, we eat, you know, fairly uh, good uh, uh, um, diets. I occasionally, I shouldn't say occasionally, mm -hmm. um, with, with some regularity, I, I, I do go on a ketogenic uh, diet okay. um, and, and we'll go on that for, I want to say maybe, um, you know, six to 12 weeks at a time. Uh, often because <laughs> I've gone through some particular mm -hmm. stage of stressful work where I've gained a few pounds and I can't mm -hmm. stand it anymore. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's kind of a, and it's kind of a good way for me to reset both my weight and my way of eating. Um, and, um, and, I, uh, and, and that's kind of a, <clears throat> um, that's kind of, a, that's a fairly interesting diet in and of itself. Um, it, it's, uh, it's one of the, I think it's one of the few, well, it's the only diet that I know where there is a, a way of objectively measuring whether you're succeeding or not in terms of, you know, being able to do your, your ketone analysis. And, um, and so it, it's very, 
one of the reasons why I like it is that with just um, a little bit of, of logging of your own food and and um, and, and and measuring um, you know, through um, um, uh, uh, either through urine samples or, or through the blood, you can get a, da a daily reading on how you're doing, and so you can adjust uh, dynamically and and stay on that kind of diet. So um, I think you know that's that's. that's parks and the beach and yeah. my dog has uh, my dog is my automated uh health system that <laughs> knows how to get me outdoors at least a couple times a day for just a regular old walk and stuff so i think that's about it oh, that seems like you have a good balance of um maintaining it for over a long period of time as well obviously you've probably um implemented the strategies you've learned about in behavioral science as well and psychology um uh, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think I no, I think that's absolutely true. So I, you know, these these things that um, these things that I'm studying are things that either I recognize in my my own um, life uh, and, and regime, um, or things that I knew about before. So, um, you know, for for most things, for example, um, you know, I I I know automatically that uh, if there's some challenge that I need to take on. Uh, there's a strategy for doing it, you know, breaking it down into small parts, making sure that you sort of get, you know, um, nice, um, simple feedback that uh, allows you to adjust and get success right off the bat. So there's a lot of strategies that I kind of already knew about and was implementing it myself. And there's one that, there's one that I think is really undervalued that I was just talking to a colleague of mine uh, about which is um, there, there's a sense in which um, our routines are are really important. So if you can, uh, if you have a a life that has a certain amount of routine in it, it makes it easier to implement a lot of these lifestyle changes. And that's because you know where to insert the changes within those routines. If you live a very chaotic life, like you know you're sleeping at all different times of the day and traveling a lot. It's really hard to do lifestyle change. You just, you don't have kind of the structure of a day in which to kind of hook the things that you need in order to support the, the lifestyle change that you need. Um, and so, so anyways, I, I, it, it's, it's kind of one of these things that I think a lot of people who are successful have already mastered. And it's something that I think is kind of underappreciated in the, more general world of, of lifestyle change. You really helped O-Waves there because O-Waves is trying to um, make people realize to form those routines and routines help form habits and you kind of seamlessly yeah. fall into those kind of, you know, healthy lifestyles, like you said. And that's where yeah. um, our mission with the app is and our vision to help people form healthy routines um, yep. around healthy circadian rhythms as well. So um, I'm great. The synergies there. And, um, coming to the end, I would love to ask you a few questions about the future. So, mm -hmm. um, firstly, do you think there will be a time or um, there'll be a possibility that we'll be able to upload our memories to a cloud or have computer chips implanted um, to augment our brains and kind of combine artificial intelligence with human cognition? 
Yeah, I mean, the first one is, you know, it's the, the idea of, uh, of uploading your mind. You know, I, <clears throat> you know, I certainly remember uh, reading the, the William Gibson books and just going, that is going to be so cool when we can do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I say uh, And so, um, so in principle, you know, I would like to think that that's, that's a possibility. I mean, it's, you know, if, if you believe that the mind is exists in the physical world, then it ought to be feasible to, to do that. Now, the issue is, is the, the physical substrate to that so dependent on the actual biological, uh, you know, chemistry and everything that, that it, you know, it's like saying, you know, um, you can create wind in a wind tunnel, but man, is it expensive to do that? And it's never quite exact, it's never quite exactly the same as being outdoors. So, um, you know, it, it could be that the physical properties of the brain kind of limit how far you can go with that. But, but setting that aside, the other stuff you talk about, I think is, 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 I think, you know, more within the reach of our lifetime or of our lifetime. So certainly, you know, being able to embed, um, I don't know if it's chips, but some kind of other device in a way that, that augments cognition um, is, I think, certainly feasible. And, um, and, and you know, the, the whole idea of having augmented cognition in, in, in a way where you've got, you know, maybe not a brain-computer interface, but something mm -hmm. like that. I think that's all, that's all being heavily researched right now, and I, and I can imagine that it's within reach. There was a recent um, news out of MIT where they transmitted thoughts between three people, I think it was. Mm -hmm. um, th that was quite interesting that they were able to do that. But also, um, if I just look at it from when I was writing a recent statement, I used Alexa was by my side and I used it for synonyms and calculating equations, which I couldn't do five, six years ago. Um, and as day-to-day -day, with more contacts and more um, um, information being kind of flooding our brains, we need a filter mechanism or we need something to help us in real time tell us, okay, this is important, this isn't, or you met this person at that time. I think smart glasses, they're trying to do something similar with that. Um, but do you see that coming in? Uh, well... I think there's all, I mean, there's already versions of that mm -hmm. around. I, 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 one, one worry I have about a lot of the, these um, augmentation, supposed, supposed systems that are supposedly augmenting you, is that they're awful, often not very well designed. So, mm. um, you know, uh, if I'm the, you know, you know as, as you were saying, ha having this system that's kind of around you in such a way that you, when you need something, you could just ask it for information and it gave it to you just at the right time. That, that seems to me a fairly well designed um, system that, that is kind of human centered, um, is engineered to the task and is more like a, um, what I think Ken Ford would call a, an orthotic in the sense that it's kind of, you know, it's supplementing what you're doing. Um, and uh, there's not a lot of great work that starts from the human and kind of figures out how to augment. It's usually like, here's a piece of technology, throw it in and let's see, let's see how that works. Um, and, and, you know, for example, the, the idea that, uh, you know, you would have an augmented reality, um, uh, 
uh, glass set that would be providing you information. Well, um, you know, that has to be highly tuned to what the task is that you're performing and how much attention you need to pay to the channel that you're mm -hmm. operating in. So, you know, uh, if you're, if, you know, if you're in a conversation as something is talking into your ear as you're, as you're in that conversation, it's not going to be a whole lot of help in making that mm -hmm. conversation go, go well. So I think you're on the right path that we have to figure out how to do this, this kind of augment, uh, you know, augmented uh, cognition or, or orthotic cognition, but it has to be, you know, from, from the get-go designed around a human-centered uh, strategy. I would agree because um, we have um, only a certain bandwidth and attention um, span where we can't be doing, it's difficult to be doing two things at once. And if we're getting up-to-date information on um, everything during a conversation, does that detract from that experience? And how does that affect human interaction as well? And where will that lead us to? Yes. And, 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 and especially if you're talking about real conversations, uh, and by real conversations, I mean, you're engaged, you're in sync, you sort of almost read their, the other person's mind. Um, those are almost flow-like experiences. And, um, you know, I can't have someone talking in my ear while I'm doing that. So, so uh, you know, and I think it's more the modulation. So the system would have to know, um, you know, I, you know, I need to back off at this moment because they need to focus completely on what they're doing mm. as opposed to, you know, now I can sort of, you know, talk to them over their shoulder about, about, uh, about something. So that um, sensitivity to the, to essentially the, you know, the psychological state and the task uh, at hand has to be, you know, has to be somehow built into the, whatever the AI is that's controlling that system. You talk about flow states. I, I read um, Decoding Superhuman and um, quite interested in um, the um, stealing fire as well um, and how people achieve flow states. Um, are you someone who tries to be in a state of flow um, more often than not? Um, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> I wish I, I wish I said I was, but I, <laughs> I'm not. But I, you know, I, you know, I, I, I've had enough experiences that are like that, that I sort of recognize it in, and maybe on a more mundane level, um, I do like to do work in a way where I'm heavily focused. Mm. So I am the kind of person who, you know, um, I, my, my, uh, my email only operates by poll. So I don't have notifications. I, mm. I only use, I only use Slack, for example, if I'm in the middle of a project and need to be fully aware of, of everything that's going on. Uh, so for the most part, you know, when I'm, when I'm working, I like to shut everything off except for the thing that I'm working on. So I wouldn't say that's a flow state, but certainly a focus state. So you keep distractions to a minimum. And Absolutely. I guess in the future, if there is some type of um, augmentation through a device which can uh, guide us, um, I guess the most useful I would find it would be using evidence-based data because in a lot of situations people we know in the public forum people draw on facts which aren't true anymore right they yeah. just rely on their memory and the memory can be quite falsified and can can you've heard something so you think it's true so if you could draw upon because i think that could really stimulate intelligent conversation where people don't have to memorize facts they could be quite in could, could be having quite an intelligent conversation and be able to pull upon a real-time fact. 
Um, so that, that's quite interesting and in where the future, I guess, with you're in the perfect space with um, human cognition and machine and um, intelligence. And I think that convergence is, will lead us to some amazing things for, for humanity. And I'd like to thank you for coming on to the Always podcast. Um, you've had a lot yeah. of insight for our listeners. I'm sure people have found it quite cool um, to have you on talking about these futuristic things, but also the applicable um, behavioral and psychological strategies for people to apply. Um, so thanks for coming on. Hey, thank you for having me on. It's been great. And is there anywhere where the listeners can follow you? Um, <laughs> well, because I'm so focused, I'm afraid not. <laughs> That's good. So we like to stay focused, which would be a very good tip for especially students as well. Um, (laughs) Know how to get deep work done. So amazing um, conversation. Um, I'm obviously very personally interested in the kind of the the convergence between tech and human. And um, I love what you're doing. So keep doing what you're doing. And I wish you the best. Okay. And let's talk again sometime soon. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Body Clock Podcast by O-Waves. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star rating on your podcast app. Please also remember to download the free O-Waves app on the Apple App Store. Please tell your friends and your family. It's a great tool to help you optimize your life and to effectively plan your day. Thanks as always for listening and uh, hope you join us again next time.